do it later. I'll All right. Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of From the Soul Out of the Ass. Or Ass. <laughs> Uh, I'm Athenianos. I'm Matthew Brown. And we have a very special guest today to join us on our second episode of Ancient Philosophy. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks, gents, for having me. Yeah, my name's Fergus, third year in philosophy. Uh, glad to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Where are you from, Fergus? I'm from Edinburgh, born and raised, which is a bit of a rarity up in uh, my way. I live in uh, Marchmont, and uh, someone from Edinburgh is a real find. Uh, really? Yeah, all international students. Nice. And you guess around Edinburgh as well. I was stunned. Someone in my metaphysics course has a Scottish accent. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> couldn't believe it. A rarity. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I'm one of them. So, yes, hello. Beautiful. Be here. So, uh, today we are, here's the plan. We're going to be discussing and reading Euthyphro. Uh, it's a Socratic dialogue. Um, we're going to first read the text, and then we are going to discuss it. So, uh, yeah, here we go. Okay, so the scene is the Agora, or central marketplace of Athens, uh, before the offices of the magistrate who registers and makes preliminary, preliminary inquiries into charges brought under the laws protecting the city from the gods' displeasure. There, Socrates meets Euthyphro, Socrates is on his way on his way in to answer the charges of impiety brought against him by three younger fellow citizens, on which he is going to be condemned to death, as we learn in the Apology. Euthyphro Uth has just deposed murder charges against his own father for the death of a servant. Murder was a religious offence, since it entailed pollution, uh, which, if not ritually purified, was displeasing to the gods. But equally, a son's taking such an action against his father might well itself be regarded as impious. Euthyphro pr professes to be acting on esoteric knowledge about the gods and their wishes, and so about the general topic of piety. Socrates seizes the opportunity to acquire from Euthyphro this knowledge of piety so that he can rebut the accusation against himself. However, like all his other interlocutors in Plato's Socr Socratic dialogues, Euthyphro cannot answer Socrates' question questions to Socrates' satisfaction, or ultimately to his own. So he cannot make it clear what piety is, though he continues to think that he does know. Thus, predictably, Socrates' Socrates' hopes are disappointed, just when he is ready to press further to help Euthyphro express his knowledge, if indeed he does possess it, Euthyphro begs off on the excuse of business elsewhere. Though Socrates does not succeed in his quest, we readers learn a good deal about the sort of thing Socrates is looking for in asking his question, what is piety, and the other what is questions he pursues in, in other dialogues. He wants a simple model or standard he can look to in order to determine which acts and persons are pious, one that gives clear, unconflicting and unambiguous answers. He wants something that can provide such a standard all on its own, as one of Euthyphro's proposals, uh, that being pious is simply being loved by the gods, cannot do, since one needs to know first what the gods do love. Pious acts and, uh, and people may indeed be loved by the gods, but that is a secondary quality, not the essence of piety. It is not that which serves as the standard being sought. There seems no reason to doubt the character Socrates' uh, sincerity in probing Euthyphro's statement so as to work out an adequate answer. He has, in advance, no answer of his own to test out or to advocate. But does the dialogue itself suggest to the alternative reader an answer of its own? Euthyphro frustrates Socrates by his inability to develop adequate, adequately his final suggestion that piety is justice in relation to the gods, 
in serving and assisting them in some purpose or enterprise of their own. Socrates seems to find that an enticing idea. Does Plato mean to suggest that piety may be shown simply in doing one's best to become as morally good as possible, something Socrates claims in the Apology the, God, the gods want more than anything else? If so, can piety remain an independent virtue at all with its own separate standard for action? These are among the questions this dialogue leaves us to ponder. And we begin okay. with Athen as Euthyphro, and I'll be reading the part of Socrates. I can't imagine you said this. What's new, Socrates? <laughs> that's a good question. I think that's a good start. <laughs> What's... I mean, uh, yeah. What's new, Socrates? To make you leave your usual haunts in the Lyceum and spend your time here in the King Archon's court? Surely you are not persecuting anyone before the King Archon as I am. The Athenians do not call this a prosecution, but an indictment, Euthyphro. What is this you say? Someone must have indicted you, for you are not going to tell me that you have indicted someone else? No, indeed. But someone else has indicted you? Quite so. Who is he? I do not really know him myself, Euthyphro. He is apparently young and unknown. They call him Melitus, I believe. He belongs to the Pythian Deme, if you know anyone from that Deme called Melitus, with long hair, not much of a beard, and a rather aquiline nose. I don't know him, Socrates. What, uh, what charge does he bring against you? What charge? Uh, and not ignoble one, I think, for it is no small thing for a young man to have knowledge of such an important subject. He says he knows how our young men are corrupted and who corrupts them. He is likely to be wise, and when he sees my ignorance corrupting his contemporaries, he proceeds to accuse me to the city as to their mother. I think he is the uh, only one of our public men to start out the right way, for it is right to care first that the young should be as good as possible, just as a good farmer is likely to care, is likely to take care of the young plants first and of the others later. So, too, Melitus first gets rid of us who corrupt the young shoots, as he says, and then afterwards he will obviously take care of the older ones and become a source of great blessings for the city, as seems likely to happen to one who started out this way. I could wish this were true, Socrates, but I fear the opposite may happen. He seems to me to start out by harming the very heart of this city by attempting to wrong you. Tell me, what does he say you do to corrupt the young? Strange things uh, to, hear, to hear him tell it, for he says that I am a maker of gods, and on the ground that I create new gods while not believing in the old ones, he has indicted me for their sake, as he puts it. I understand, Socrates. This is because you say that the divine sign keeps coming to you. So he has written this indictment against you as one who makes innovations in religious matters. And he comes to court to slander you, knowing that such things are easily misrepresented to the crowd. The same is true in my case. Whenever I speak of divine matters in the assembly and foretell the future, they laugh me down as if I were crazy. And yet... I have foretold nothing that did not happen. <laughs> Nevertheless, they envy all of us who do this. One need not worry about them, but meet them head on. My dear Euthyphro, to be laughed at does not matter, perhaps, for the Athenians do not mind anyone they think clever, as long as he does not teach his own wisdom. But if they think that he makes others to be like himself, they get angry, whether through envy, as you say, or for some other reason. Well, I have no desire to test their feelings toward me in this matter. 
Perhaps you seem to make yourself but rarely available and not be willing to teach your own wisdom. But I'm afraid that my liking uh, for people makes them think that I pour out to anybody uh, anything I have to say, not only without charging a fee, but even glad to reward anyone who is willing to listen. If then they were intending to laugh at me, as you say they laugh at you, there would be nothing unpleasant in their spending their time in court laughing and jesting. But if they are going to be serious, the outcome is not clear except to you prophets. Perhaps it will come to nothing, Socrates, and you will fight your case as you think best, as I think I will mine. What is your case, Euthyphro? Are you the defendant or the prosecutor? The prosecutor. Whom do you prosecute? One who I am thought crazy to prosecute. Are you pursuing someone who will easily escape you? Far from it, for he is quite old. Uh, who is it? My father. My dear sir, your own father? Certainly. What is the charge? What is the case about? Murder, Socrates. Good heavens. Certainly, Euthyphro, most men would not know how they could do this and be right. It is not the part of anyone to do this, but of one who is far advanced in wisdom. Yes, by Zeus, Socrates, that is so. Is then the man your father killed one of your relatives, or is, is that obvious? You would not prosecute your father for the murder of a stranger. It is ridiculous, Socrates, for you to think that it makes any difference whether the victim is a stranger or relative. One should only watch whether the killer acted justly or not. If he acted justly, let him go. But if not, one should prosecute. If, that is to say, the killer shares your hearth and table. The pollution is the same if you knowingly keep company with such a man and do not cleanse yourself and him by bringing him to justice. The victim was a dependent of mine, and when we were farming in Naxos, he was a servant of ours. He killed one of our household slaves in drunken anger, so my father bound him hand and foot and threw him in a ditch. Then sent a man here to inquire from the priest what should be done. During that time he gave no thought or care to the bound man, as being a killer, and it was no matter if he died, which he did. Hunger and cold and his bonds caused his death before the messenger came back from the seer. <clears throat> Both my father and my other relatives are angry that I am prosecuting my father for murder on behalf of a murderer. When he hadn't even killed him, they say, and if he had, the dead man does not deserve a thought, since he was a killer. For they say it is impious for a son to prosecute his father for murder. But their ideas of the divine attitude to piety and impiety are wrong, Socrates. Whereas, by Zeus, Euthyphro, you think that your knowledge of the divine and of piety and impiety is so accurate when those things happened, as you say, you have no fear of having acted impiously in bringing your father to trial? I should be of no use. Socrates and Euthyphro would not be superior to the majority of men if I did not have accurate knowledge of such things. It is indeed most important, my admirable Euthyphro, that I should become your pupil, and as regard this indictment... Challenge Meletus about these very things and say to him that in the past, too, I considered knowledge about the divine to be most important, and that, uh, and that now that he says that I am guilty of improvising and innovating about the gods, I have become your pupil. I could say to him, if, Meletus, you agree, Euthyphro is wise in these matters, consider me, too, to have the right beliefs, and do not bring me to trial. If you do not think so, then prosecute that teacher of mine, not me, for corrupting the older men me and his own father, by teaching me and by exhorting and punishing him. If he is not convinced, 
and does not discharge me or indict you instead of me, I shall repeat the same challenge in court. Yes, by Zeus, Socrates, and if he should try to indict me, I think I would find his weak spots, and the talk in court would be about him rather than me. It is because I realise this that I am eager to become your pupil, my dear friend. I know that other people, as well as this Melitus, do not even uh, seem to notice you, whereas he sees me so sharply and clearly that he indicts me for ungodliness. So tell me now, by Zeus, what you just now maintained you clearly knew. What kind of thing do you say that godliness and ungodliness are, both as regards murder and other things? Or is the pious not the same and alike in every action, and the impious the opposite of all that is pious and like itself, and everything that is to be impious presents us with one form or appearance insofar as it is impious? Most certainly, Socrates. Well, tell me then, what is the pious and what the impious, do you say? I say that the pious is to do what I am doing now, to prosecute the wrongdoer, be it about murder or temple robbery or anything else, whether the wrongdoer is your father or your mother or anyone else, not to prosecute is impious. And observe, Socrates, that I can cite powerful evidence that the law is so. I have already said to others that such actions are right, not to favor the ungodly, whoever they are. These people themselves believe that Zeus is the best and most just of the gods, Yet they agree that he bound his father because he unjustly swallowed his sons, and that he in turn, in turn castrated his father for similar reasons. But they are angry with me because I am prosecuting my father for his wrongdoing. They contradict themselves in what they say about the gods and me. Indeed, Euthyphro. This is the reason why I am a defendant in the case, because I find it hard to accept things like that being said about the gods, and that is likely to be the reason why I should be told I do wrong. Now, however, if you, who have full knowledge of such things, share their opinion, uh, then we must agree with them too, it would seem. For what are we to say, we who agree what we ourselves have no knowledge of them? Tell me, uh, by the God of friendship, do you really believe these things are true? Yes, Socrates, and so are even more surprising things, of which the majority has no knowledge. And do you believe that there really is war among the gods, and terrible enmities and battles, and other such things as are told by the poets, and other sacred stories such as uh, are embroidered by good writers and by representations of which the robe of the goddess is adorned when it is carried up to the Acropolis. Are we to say these things are true, Euthyphro? Not only these, Socrates, but as I was saying just now, I will, if you wish, relate many other things about the gods which I know will amaze you. I should not be surprised, but you will tell me these at leisure some other time. For now, try to tell me more clearly what I was asking just now, for, my friend, you did not teach me adequately when I asked you what the pious was, but you told me that what you are doing now in prosecuting your father for murder is pious. And I told the truth, Socrates. Perhaps. You agree, however, that there are many other pious actions. There are. And bear in mind then that I did not bid you to tell me one or two of the many pious actions, but that form itself that makes all pious actions pious. For you agreed that all impious actions are impious, and all pious actions pious through one form, or don't you remember? If that is how you want it, Socrates, that is how I would tell you. Skipped a couple of lines. I do. Uh, tell me then, what is this form itself? Uh, sorry, tell me then what this form itself is, so that I may look upon it 
and, using it as a model, say that any action of yours or another's uh, that is of that kind is pious, and if it is not that, it is not. If that is how you want it, Socrates, that is how I would tell you. That is what I want. Well then, what is dear to the gods is pious. What is not is impious. Splendid, Euthyphro. <laughs> you have now answered in the way I wanted. Whether your answer is true, I do not yet know. But you will obviously show me that what you say is true. Certainly. Well, come then. Let us examine what we mean. An action or a man dear to the gods is pious. But an action or a man hated by the gods is impious. They are not the same, but quite opposite, the pious and the impious. Is that not so? It is, indeed. And that seems to be a good statement? I think so, Socrates. Okay. We have also stated that the gods are in a state of discord, that they are at odds with each other, Euthyphro, and, and that they are at enmity with each other. Has that too been said? It has. And what are the subjects of difference that cause hatred and anger? Let us look at it this way. If you and I were to differ about numbers, as to which is the greater, which uh, would this difference make us enemies and angry with each other, or would we proceed to count and soon, res soon resolve our difference about this? We would certainly do so. And again, if we differed about the larger and the smaller, we would turn to measurement and soon cease to differ. That is so. And about the heavier and the lighter, we would resort to weighing and be reconciled. Of course. And what subject of difference would make us angry and hostile to each other if we were unable to come to a decision? Perhaps you do not have an answer ready, but examine as I tell you whether these subjects are the just and the unjust, the beautiful and the ugly, the good and the bad. Are these not the subjects of difference about which, uh, when we are able to come to a satisfactory decision, you and I and other men become hostile to each other whenever we do? That is the difference, Socrates, about those subjects. And what about the gods, Euthyphro? If indeed they have differences, will it not be about these same subjects? It certainly must be so. Then, according to your argument, my good Euthyphro, different gods consider different things to be just, beautiful, ugly, good, and bad, for they would not be at odds with one another unless they differed about these subjects, would they? You are right. And they... Uh, and they like what each of them considers beautiful, good and just, and hate the opposites of these. Certainly. But you say that the same things are considered just by some gods and unjust by others, and as they dispute about these things, they are at odds and at war with each other. Is that not so? It is. The same things, then, are loved by the gods and hated by the gods, and will be both God-loved and God-hated. It does seem likely. And the same things would be both pious and impious, according to this argument. I'm afraid so. So you did not answer my question, you surprising man. I did not ask you what same thing is both pious and impious, and it appears that what is loved by the gods is also hated by them. So it is in no way surprising if your present action, namely punishing your father, uh, may be pleasing to Zeus, but displeasing to Cronus and Uranus, pleasing uh, Hephaestus, but displeasing to Hera, and so with any other gods who differ from each other on this subject. I think, Socrates, that on this subject no gods would differ from one another, that whoever has killed anyone unjustly should pay the penalty. Well now, Euthyphro, have you ever heard any man maintaining that one who was killed or done anything else unjustly should not pay the penalty? They never cease to dispute on this subject, both elsewhere and in the courts, for when they have committed many wrongdoings, they do and say anything to avoid the penalty. Do they agree they have done wrong, Euthyphro, and in spite of so agreeing, do they never, nevertheless say they should not be punished? No, they do not agree on that point. 
So they do not say or do just anything, for they do not venture to say this, or dispute that they must not pay the penalty if they have done wrong. But I think they deny wrong. Sorry, I, but I think they deny doing wrong. Is that not so? That is true. Then they do not dispute that the wrongdoer must be punished, but they may disagree as to who the wrongdoer is, what he did, and when. You are right. Do not the gods have the same experience, if indeed they are at odds with each other, about the just and the unjust, as your argument maintains? Some assert that they wrong one another, while others deny it, but no one among gods or men ventures to say that the wrongdoer must not be punished. Yes, that is true, Socrates, as to the main point. And those who disagree, whether men or gods, dispute about each action, if indeed the gods disagree. Some say it is done justly, others unjustly. Is that not so? Yes, indeed. Come now, my dear Euthyphro, tell me, too, that I have become wiser. What proof you have that all the gods consider that man... So I'm going to start that again. <clears throat> Come now, my dear Euthyphro, tell me, too, that I may become wiser. What proof you have that all the gods consider that man to have been killed unjustly, who became a murderer while in your service, was bound by the master of his victim, and died in his bonds before the one who bound him, found out from the seers what was to be done with him, and that it is right for a son to denounce and to prosecute his father on behalf of such a man. Come, try to show me a clear sign that all the gods definitely believe this action to be right. If you can give me adequate proof of this, I shall never cease to extol your wisdom. This is perhaps no light task, Socrates, though I could show you very clearly. I understand that you think me more dull-witted than the jury, as you will obviously show them that these actions were unjust, and that all the gods hate such, action, such actions. I will show it to them clearly, Socrates, if only they will listen to me. They will listen if they think you show them well. But this thought came to me as you were speaking, and I am examining it, saying to myself, If Euthyphro shows me conclusively that all the gods consider such a death unjust, to what greater extent have I learnt from him the nature of piety and impiety? This action would then, it seems, be hated by the gods, but the pious and the impious were not thereby now defined, for what is hated by the gods has also been shown to be loved by them. So I will not insist on this point, let us assume, if you wish, that all the gods consider this unjust, and that they all hate it. However, is this the correction we are making in our discussion, that what all the gods hate is impious, and what all they love uh, is pious, and that what some gods love and others hate is neither or both? Is that how you wish us to define piety and impiety? What prevents us from doing so, Socrates? Well, for my part, nothing, Euthyphro. But you look whether on your part this proposal will enable you to teach me most easily what you promised. I would certainly say that the pious is what all the gods love, and the opposite, what all the gods hate, is the impious. Then let us again examine whether that is a sound statement, or do we let it pass, and if one of us or someone else merely says that something is so, do we accept that it is so, or should we examine what the speaker means? We must examine it, but I certainly think that this is now a fine statement. We shall soon we shall soon know better whether it is. Consider this. Is the pious being loved by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is being loved by the gods? I don't know what you mean, Socrates. I shall try to explain more clearly. We speak of something carried and something carrying, of something led and something leading, of something seen and something seeing, 
and you'll understand that these things are all different from one another and how they differ. I think I do. So there is also something loved and a different thing, something loving. Of course. Well, tell me then whether the thing carried is a carried thing because it is being carried or for some other reason. No, that is the reason. And the thing led is so because it is being led and the thing seen because it is being seen. Certainly. It is not being seen because it is a thing seen, but on the contrary, it is a thing seen because it is being seen. Nor is it because it is something led that it is being led, but because it is being led that it is something led. And nor is something being carried because it is something carried, but it is something carried because it is being carried. Is what I want to say clear, Euthyphro. I want to say this, namely, that if anything is being changed or is being affected in any way, it is not being changed because it is something changed, but rather it is something changed because it is being changed. Nor is it being affected because it is something affected, but it is something affected because it is being affected. Or do you not agree? I do. Is something loved either something changed or something affected by something? Certainly. So it is in the same case as the things just mentioned. It is not being loved by those who love it because it is something loved, but it is something loved because it is being loved by them. Necessarily. What then do we say about the pious Euthyphro? Surely that, sorry, surely that it is being loved by all the gods, according to what you say. Yes. Uh, is it being loved because it is pious or for some other reason? For no other reason. And is it being loved then because it is pious, but it is not pious because it is, because it is being loved? Apparently. And yet it is something loved and God-loved because it is being loved by the gods. Of course. Then the God-loved is not the same as the pious, Euthyphro, nor the pious the same as the God-loved, as you say it is, but one differs from the other. How so, Socrates? Because we agree that the pious is being loved for this reason, that it is pious. But it is not pious because it is being loved. Is that not so? Yes. And that the God-loved, on the other hand, is so because it is being loved by the gods, by the very fact of being loved, but it is not being loved because it is God-loved. True. But if the God-loved and the pious were the same, my dear Euthyphro, then if the pious was being loved because it was pious, the God-loved would also be being loved because it was God-loved. And if the God-loved was God-loved because it was being loved by the gods, then the pious would also be the pious because it was being loved by the gods. But now you see that they are in opposite cases as being altogether different from each other. The one is such as to be loved because it is being loved. The other is being loved because it is such as to be loved. I'm afraid, Euthyphro, that when you were asked what piety is, you did not wish to make its nature clear to me, but you told me an affect or quality of it, that the pious has the quality of being loved by all the gods, but you have not yet told me what the pious is. Now, if you will, do not hide things from me, but tell me again from the beginning what piety is, whether being loved by the gods or having some other quality, we shall not quarrel about that. But be keen to tell me what the pious and the impious are. But Socrates, I have no way of telling you what I have in mind. For whatever proposition we put forward goes around and refuses to say put, wherever we establish it. Your statements, Euthyphro, seem to belong to my ancestor, Daedalus. If I would ask, sorry, if I were stating them, 
and putting them forward, you would perhaps be making fun of me and say that because of my kinship with him, my conclusions in discussion run away and will not stay where one puts them. As these propositions are yours, however, we need some other jest, for they will not stay put for you, as you say yourself. I think the same jest will go for will do for our discussion, Socrates, for I am not the one who makes them go round and not remain in the same place. It is you who are the Daedalus, for as I am concerned that they would remain as they were. It looks as if I were cleverer than Daedalus in using my skill, my friend, insofar as he could only cause to move the things he made himself, but I can make other people's move as well as my own. And the smartest part of my skill is that I am clever without wanting to be. Oh my God. <laughs> For I would rather have your statements to me remain unmoved than possess the wealth of Tantalus, as well as the cleverness of Diadalus. But enough of this, since I think you are making unnecessary difficulties. I am as eager as you are to find a way to teach me about piety, and do not give up before you do. See whether you think all that is pious is of necessity just. I think so. And is then all that is just pious? Or is all that is pious just? But not all that is just pious, but some of it is and some is not. I don't follow what you're saying, Socrates. Yet you are younger than I by as much as you are wiser. As I say, you are making yes. difficulties. <laughs> Here's a bit of a <laughs> Sharpen up, yeah. says Socrates. Um, as I say, you are making difficulties because of your wealth of wisdom. Pull yourself together, my dear sir. What I am saying is not difficult to grasp. I'm saying the opposite of what the poet said who wrote. You do not wish to name Zeus, who had done it, and who made all things grow. For where there is fear, there is also shame. I disagree with the poet, Euthyphro. Shall I tell you why? Please do. I do not think that where there is fear, there is also shame. For I think that many people who fear disease and poverty and many other such things feel fear, but are not ashamed of the things they fear. Do you not think so? I do indeed. But where there is shame, there is also fear. For is there anyone who, in feeling shame and embarrassment about anything, does not also at the same time fear and dread a reputation for wickedness? He is certainly afraid. It is then not right to say, where there is fear, there is also shame, but that where there is shame, there is also fear, for fear covers a larger area than shame. Shame is a part of fear, just as odd is a part of a number, with the result that it is not true that where there is, uh, where there is number, there is also oddness, but that where there is oddness, there is also number. Do you follow me now? Surely. This is the kind of thing I was asking before. Whether where there is piety, there is also justice. But where there is justice, there is not always piety. For the pious is a part of justice. Shall we say that, or do you think otherwise? No, but like that, for what you say appears to be right. Mm. See what comes next. <clears throat> if the pious is a part of the just, we must, it seems, find out what part of the just it is. Now, if you asked me something of what we mentioned just now such as what part of number is the even and what number that is, I would say it is the number that is divisible into two equal, not unequal parts. Or do you not think so? I do. Well, try in this way to tell me what part of the just the pious is, in order to, in order to tell Melitus not to wrong us any more than to indict me for ungodliness, since I have learned from you sufficiently what is godly and pious and what is not. 
I think, Socrates, the godly and pious is the part of the just that is concerned with the care of the gods, while that concern with the care of men is the remaining part of justice. You seem to me to put that very well, but I still need a bit of information. I do not know yet what you mean by care, for you do not mean the care of the gods in the same sense as the care of other things, as, for example, we say, don't we, that not everyone knows how to care for horses, but the horse breeder does. Yes, I do mean it in that way. So horse breeding is the care of horses. Yes. Nor does everyone know how to care for dogs, but the hunter does. That is so. So hunting is the care of dogs. Yes. And cattle raising is the care of cattle. Quite so. While piety and godliness is the care of the gods, Euthyphro, is that what you mean? It is. Now, care in each case has the same effect. It aims at the good and the benefit of the object cared for, as you can see that horses cared for by horse breeders are benefited and become better, or do you not think so? I do. So dogs are benefited by dog breeding, cattle by cattle raising, and so with all the others. Or do you think that care aims to harm the object of its care? By Zeus, no. It aims to benefit the object of its care. Of course. Is piety, then, which is the care of the gods, also to benefit the gods and make them better? Would you agree that when you do something pious, you make some one of the gods better? By Zeus, no. Nor do I think that this is what you mean, far from it. But that is why I asked you what you meant by the care of the gods, because I did not believe you meant this kind of care. Quite right, Socrates. That is not the kind of care I mean. Very well. But what kind of care of the gods would piety be? The kind of care, Socrates, that slaves take of their masters. I understand. It is likely to be the kind of service... Uh, sorry, it is likely to be a kind of service of the gods. Quite so. Could you tell me, to the achievement of what goal service to doctors tends, it is not, do you think, to achieving health? I think so. What about service to shipbuilders? To, achieve, uh, to what achievement is it, is it directed? Clearly, Socrates, to the building of a ship. And service to house builders, to the building of a house? Yes. Tell me then, my good sir, to the achievement of what aim does service to the gods tend? He obviously knows, since you say that you, of all men, have the best knowledge of the divine. And I am telling the truth, Socrates. Well, tell me then, by Zeus, what is that excellent aim that the gods achieve using us as their servants? Many fine things, Socrates. So, so do generals, my friend, nevertheless... You could easily tell as their main concern, which is to achieve victory in war, is it not? Of course. The farmers, too, I think, achieve many fine things, but the main point of their efforts is to produce food from the earth. Quite so. Well then, how would you sum up the many fine things that the gods achieve? I told you a short while ago, Socrates, that it is a considerable task to acquire any, price, any precise knowledge of these things. But, to put it simply, I say that if a man knows how to say and do what is pleasing to the gods... At prayer and sacrifice, those are pious actions such as preserve both private houses and public affairs of state. The opposite of these pleasing actions are impious and overturn and destroy everything. You could tell me in far fewer words, if you were willing, the sum of what I asked you to throw, but you are not keen to teach me, that is clear. You were on the point of doing so, but you turned away. If you had given that answer... I should now have acquired from you sufficient knowledge of the nature of piety. And it is, uh, the lover of inquiry must follow his beloved wherever it may lead him. Once more, then, what do you say that piety and the pious are? Are they knowledge of how to sacrifice and pray? They are. 
To sacrifice is to make a gift to the gods, whereas to pray is to beg from the gods. Definitely, Socrates. It would follow from this, from this statement, that piety would be a knowledge of how to give and to beg from the gods. You understood what I said very well, Socrates. That is because I am so desirous of your wisdom, and I Are concentrate you? my mind mm -hmm. absolutely, and I concentrate my mind on it so that no words of yours may fall to the ground. I like that. But tell me, what is this service to the gods? You say it is to beg from them and to give to them. I do. And to beg correctly would be to ask from them things that we need. What else? And to give correctly is to give them what they need from us, for it would not be skillful to bring gifts to anyone that are in no way needed. True, Socrates. Piety would then be a sort of trading skill between gods and men. Trading, yes, if you prefer to call it that. Well, I prefer nothing unless it is true. But tell me, what benefit do the gods derive from the gifts they receive from us? What they what they give us is obvious to all. There is for us no good that we do not receive from them. But how are they benefited by what they receive from us? Or do we have such an advantage over them in the trade that we receive all our blessings from them and they receive nothing from us? Do you suppose, Socrates, that the gods are benefited by what they receive from us? What, uh, what could those gifts from us to the gods be, Euthyphro? What else do you think than honor, reverence, and what I mentioned just now, to please them? The pious is then, Euthyphro, pleasing to the gods, but not beneficial or dear to them. I think it is, of all things, most dear to them. So the pious is once again what is dear to the gods? Most certainly. When you say this, you will be surprised if your arguments seem to move about uh, instead of staying put. And will you accuse me of being Diadolus, who makes them move, though you are yourself much more skillful than Diadolus and make them go round in a circle? Or do you not realize that our argument has moved around and come again to the same place? You surely remember that earlier the pious and the god-loved were shown not to be the same but different from each other. Or do you not remember? I do. Do you then not realize now that you are saying that what is dear to the gods is the pious? Is this not the same as the god-loved, or is it not? It certainly is. So either we were wrong when we agreed before, or if we were right then, we are wrong now. That seems to be so. So we must investigate again from the beginning what piety is. I, as I shall not willingly give up before I learn this. Do not think me unworthy, but concentrate your attention and tell the truth. For you know it, and if any man does, and I must not let you go, like Proteus, before you tell me. If you had no clear knowledge of piety and impiety, you would never have ventured to prosecute your old father for murder on behalf of a servant. For fear of the gods, you would have been afraid to take the risk, lest you should not be acting rightly, and would have been ashamed before men. But now I know well that you believe you have clear knowledge of piety and impiety. So tell me, my good Euthyphro, and do not hide what you think it is. Some other time, Socrates, for I am in a hurry now, and it is time for me to go. What a thing to do, my friend. By going, you have cast me down from a great hope I had, that I would learn from you the nature of the pious and the impious, and so escape Melitus's indictment by showing him that I had acquired wisdom in divine matters from Euthyphro, and my ignorance would no longer cause me to be careless and inventive about such things and that I would be better for the rest of my life. Okay, so that was... Uh, the Euthyphro. Euthyphro uh, by... Um, Plato. Plato, but Socrates was the one speaking. Whether or not 
um, it was actually Socrates. It's uh, an open question. It's an open yeah, question. We'll, we'll get into it. I think it was, but who knows. All right, so um, I, since Matthew and I just read that, I think it would be uh, wise for Fergus if you could give us your initial commentary. Wonderful, yeah. Uh, I agree, that makes sense. And, and uh, sorry, oh, we should just note that he, unfortunately, has to leave uh, at a certain time, so if he steps out, so you're left with these two, unfortunately. Don't be alarmed. Yeah. We didn't kick him out. He just <laughs> left on his own accord. It was plan. Yeah. Yes. So anyway. Great. Continue. No, thanks. Yeah. Well, perhaps an overall point to start with. Um, and maybe this point will help people see why it's so relevant to everyone. Um, point number why it's, uh, yeah, important for philosophy at large today is um, where Socrates is asking uh, you to throw for a clear and uh, you know full definition of, say, piousness or holiness. Um, it's very much like the question of grounding moral authority in a sense because uh, Euthyphro says that uh, what's pious or what's holy is such because the gods love it mm. and so the question is there um, if you shoot onto philosophy of religion uh, divine, divine command theory where it's like uh, is what's good good because God decrees it or because mm. God discerns it mm. um, so if it's and either are, are troublesome if what's good is good because God just says it's good then there's a kind of arbitrary, mm. uh, almost totalitarian flavour to that. But it's consistent with God being omnipotent. So that's good fun in, in a way, but flawed in a way. If it's that God discerns what's good, then it uh, there's not an arbitrariness. You know, God's adhering to some good reasons because he's working out what's good for us in this world. Mm. But God's limited by something because there's obviously some standard to which Super God seats. has to adhere. Right, right, right. So they're both flawed. Um, and that's present in this discussion of uh, defining piousness. So there's an overall point. I don't know what you think of that, gents. Well, that would be the dilemma when people refer to the, the youth. Of this is it, exactly. Yeah. Right, right. yeah. I'm not sure I understand why the second one is flawed. Because there's because the, the idea of God is that God is... Omnipotent. Like, yeah, as like the most high, right? But if, if he's... If he is responding to something that is good prior to God, and there is something that is of value that is higher than God himself, because God was God is God is responding to something that is above him, which in the He's subservient in, to some rule. To something, which theologically well, well, doesn't fit in with the Why why wouldn't it be that he's delineating what's good and what's not good? So that's well, on that's, the, that's that's on the decree side where that's he's saying that it, this is good and it's good because I say it. And that's got an arbitrary quality, which a, p- a perfect being surely wouldn't have. Surely mm. a perfect being would have good reasons. But I guess the answer would be it. because he's omnipotent and divine and good, then it would be what is what is good is what he says is good because yeah. he is the good. Yeah. Mm. But the problem with that is we just have to take it and there's no good rationale for it. So mm. you'd want the perfect being to be perfectly explicable. Um, yeah, and then, so there's interesting sort of uh, uh, corollary, uh, corollary, corollary, <laughs> corollary. Yeah, help me out there. Corollary? That's it, thank you. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, the American. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so there's one in, um, uh, interestingly, um, color perception, well, okay, on metaphysics generally. Um, so... Uh, excuse me, on a, in meta-ethics generally. So the question we arrived at there is, why is what's good good? For w- what reason is it? Like, what's where's the authority in goodness from? Mm. And we've said that there's, uh, either way on the divine command theory is a bit problematic. 
But then um, it turns out kind of any way you tried to ground moral authority, you kind of run up against this problem of um, the why. Like, so the sure. justification the, of justifying, yeah. Um, so, why is what's pious pious in the case of Euthyphro, and then why is what's good good in the mm. uh, secular world? And uh, so, there's various ways you can do it. You can try and ground it in naturalism um, uh, and say evolutionary theory and come up with an explanation of why, um, based on historical contingencies, we have an evolved sense of good. Um, and so that's kind of grounding it because you're explaining, well, uh, for instance, there's a guy called Roos who says that um, what's good for us is a product of our evolution, which has been in the service of uh, collaboration payoffs. So we've tried to collaborate as creatures for <clears throat> our evolutionary history, and that's what we've been attuned to. And so all our ideas of goodness fall out of like co collaborating, like so reciprocity, sharing, mm. all these things seem like moral virtues to us. But it's just because of contingencies of our evolutionary history. Right. So in that case, you have explained it in a way. You've given mo morality some uh, grounding. But again, it's still left without why. You know, why in, in this moment should we really adhere to what we take to be good? Uh, some kind of evolutionary contingency doesn't actually answer that question. Um, mm. And so even there, you're left with the problem of uh, giving necessary conditions for uh, morality, but not explaining it in its totality, which you would want, and I think that's what Socrates is looking for uh, in this dialogue. And the the reason why this question uh, the, doesn't necessarily explain that is because while it might be adaptive, mm. it might not be adapted to the present situation. Right, that that's in. another angle on it. Right. Yeah, right. exactly, okay. yeah, precisely. Yeah, and in another analogy for it to describe the point clearer is in color perception. Um, it seems that uh, sort of just like extensive literature on perception of color. That's not that, that's a live debate, and it isn't sufficient to explain that color is wavelength of light. That doesn't account for like the quality of redness. Mm. Say, you know, it's a, it seems to be a fact that wavelengths of light is wave, wavelengths of light are associated with colors, but uh, that doesn't suffice for a description of why red experientially in terms of the qualia is red. You know, um, and so that, that that's an analogy for the, for, for the point. Sure, sure. Because you have those, you have those. Um, what are they called? There's a certain species of shrimp. Mm. Uh, they've got like because we only have is it four or s four or five yeah, cones, cones in our eyes. Yeah. Whereas these shrimp have like fourteen. Okay. Have a look at it, like uh, and so the, the qualia, the, right. the perspective or the experience of those shrimp in the ocean, which I imagine looks pretty cool for them, mm. would be while they would have the same experience of something we would say is red, they would have an entirely different entirely experience different, yeah. of what we would say is red. Right. Because they're taking in more than what we mm -hmm. can. And so even so, they're even within the physicalist paradigm, you're so, showing how there's complete variance in the manifestation of redness. Right, a relativity. Yeah, right, very relativity, yeah. Mm. Listening to, to you guys talk about this, it, it makes me you know, think about, it's no wonder that Socrates concluded that you can't know anything, <laughs> right, right. you know, because he's like, he's all about, you know, instinct and kind of, he has this, I forget what he calls it, but this, sign, this, right, this yeah, like right. sign that, right. you know, he, he follows and that's the only way he, he uh, knows what he's doing is, is good or not, but he has no like rationale. It only informs him when not to do something. Oh, right. You're right. When not to do when something. When not to do something. The little voice says, don't do that. Or stop, mm. stop doing it. Doesn't tell him what to do. Right. Okay. It says don't do that, and then he always follows it, and then that gets him to drinking hemlock. Because <laughs> the voice does not tell him not to drink hemlock. Right, right, right. Evidently, yeah. Yeah, I was interested in the uh, lecture we had about it that um, 
the lecture was saying that Socrates is taken as an anti-democratic figure in America. That was a surprise to me. I don't know if you've come across that before. I glossed over it. I didn't I, hear it. I, I, I have definitely I hadn't come across that. aware of that. That seems very odd to me. Yeah, because uh, it's it's it, he's very much concerned with like the tyranny of the majority, and the idea that like the mass can elect somebody who's. I think it's I think it's an idea kind of molded from like Plato and Socrates, <clears throat> but it's the idea that you can have somebody that speaks really well, it's really convincing, mm. but has no ah. qualifications ah. and has shown no ability to actually be the person who can best govern the city. Ah. And right. with a democracy... Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> you, can, yeah. you can end up with these like very you know, flamboyant you know, yeah. personality okay. people getting elected. Uh, well, it's about rhetoric. It's about like the the, mm-hmm. the people who can convince people to elect them right. into positions like doesn't necessarily like yeah. the sophist doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best mm-hmm. people for the job or that they have a particular set of skills or knowledge to right. be able to govern. And and, and if you if you kind of like think about you know Socrates' whole critique of experts, mm. right? He 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 doubts that there's anybody you know who we can say is like a definitive expert. Okay. Michael Gove or Socrates? <laughs> Socrates, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, don't, I yeah, I, I, see, I very much see what you're saying. That makes sense. But yeah, in my head, it was that Socrates was like a romantic figure, uh, sort of emblematic of what democracy could be, uh, mm. rather than he was like anti-democratic. I'm not sure if that... What was his reason. romantic idea of what... Because like, well, he, uh, he was on the charge of corrupting the youth of Athens. Yeah. And so I thought that, I took that to imply that like he wanted people to think for themselves, which is like a real democratic ideal, I suppose. Hmm. Well, I, I heard a really, I can't remember where I heard this, but I heard a really interesting conception of uh, democracy. Actually, it was at the Conservative Society we were at the other day when they spoke about um, democracy on a leash. Yeah. Right? That's kind of like uh, coming back from the idea of the tyranny of the majority. So democracy unleashed, right, would lead you to uh, tyranny of the majority, right, mm, with people yeah. uh, being convinced to be elected without necessarily being what's for the best for the country, but then to have mechanisms that constrain it a little bit, right? Like, and there you were using the House of Lords as an example. Um, But that's an interesting concept, kind of like, because I I also hadn't come across that idea of, in America, of Socrates being an anti-democratic. The idea is, like, if you had, like, a... uh, If you had a ship, right? And if the captain of the ship... you, You want the captain of the ship being the person who knows the most about, you know, uh, whatever, ship sailing, know, sailing, right? Like the person who navigation. knows how to navigate. Ship explosion. Ship, ship knowledge, right? Knows yeah. everything, knows how to navigate the waters, yeah. knows all the points, knows how to direct the command, you know, is honest with everybody, knows, you know, exactly how it goes. Right. And you want, but in order to get that person, you want some kind of <clears throat> merit, you know, based system so that that person sure. is mm-hmm. the head. And if you open it up to everybody to kind of say, oh, we're just going to decide yeah. based on popular opinion mm-hmm. and, a, and a vote who gets to be the captain and you let a- anybody yeah. put their name in, you then open you yourself can, up to you uh, end popularity up... and all that kind of thing, which doesn't necessarily imply the characteristics you're seeing as a good right. account. You can end up right. with somebody. But some, yeah. but some domains and some enterprises aren't 
democratic, right? The the military, you said ship building or ship navigation, the military came to mind mm -hmm. as you were speaking, right? It's right. not a democracy. Well, but the analogy is, you know, the country or the state mm. to the ship. I right? The I captain of the ship is analogous to the president. The president, yeah. the prime minister. Yeah. But the, the case study of history seems to be that the democracies do better than the uh, totalitarian well, look, states. You, you know what Aristotle said, right? He said a few things, I'm sure. What's this one? He said he kind of ranked the the forms of government. But don't say lowest. And it? well, he goes, you know, like there's the single rule, which is, yeah. you know, the autocracy, the, the double rule, which is like the multiple kind of people, the aristocracy, and then you have democracy. Mm -hmm. And he thinks that uh, that a autocracy has the highest chance of success or highest no the highest Just like and the end the best possible case scenario of autocracy is the best option uh. the best possible scenario of autoc uh, aristocracy is the second best the best possible option of democracy mm. is the third best but mm. what he says is the worst possible scenario of autocracy is the worst possible option uh, the autocracy autocracy like autocracy can give you the best but it could also give you the absolute worst ah, tyranny okay uh aristocracy mm -hmm. can give you the second best but it also okay. can be the worst can be the second worst right democracy is the worst of the best but the best of the worst interesting okay and so okay. it's the safest option for us mm. does, does history give us any examples of uh, uh desirable autocracies i wonder well one rush to mind. Well, you know, Alexander the Great, you could argue, was good for his people. Not running a state, though. Running a state. Right? I'd have to go back, but um, I don't know. Cyrus the Great. Seemed oh, yeah. like a good guy. I'm not familiar with Cyrus. No, what, what was he? Persian doing? king. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think. My history isn't amazing, so. Yeah. I, you know. <clears throat> But look, it makes it makes sense rationally, and we yeah, we're, uh, none of us are uh, short-handed examples of feelings of democracy. They are they are, they are all around. I mean, like definitely. there were some there were some French kings who weren't terrible for the state, like mm -hmm. uh, I think Louis the Seventh did a lot for arts and developed France. Oh sure, uh, culturally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, I like like you said, it's kind of like that that kind of median range of like best and worst, and nothing comes without its risks right and it's right. the one where you're sort of at maximally in communication with each other putting forward arguments trying to convince people who then get to have some kind of a say in it right yeah you might have situations where you wind up with uh corrupt and inefficient governance right? mm. but it provides you with the mechanism to remedy that should you Wish to pay attention to it right. and to put it right, right? Mm. rather than being in a situation where you have a kleptocracy, autocracy, yep. whatever, because then you can't set it right because you've yeah. got the totality of the system around you that mm -hmm. prevents you from doing so. Although you could take a Foucaultian stance, go uh -oh, for it, uh -oh, uh -oh. and say that like what having like an autocracy allows you to do is you know people know very particularly where the problem is. Mm. Where is it in a democracy when you have a lot of these different parts and it's very layered and deconstructed, it's much harder for the people to know how to, you know, revolt and rebel against the system 
that they That's may right. like. Difficult to describe the problem. Whereas in, an, in an autocracy, if you have a t tyrant, it's very easy. It might be difficult, mm. but it's very easy for the people to know this is the bad guy and the solution is we chop his head off. <laughs> in the case of, yeah. you know, France, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. And so in some ways that can almost make things easier for people and be better. But that's just what Foucault thinks. Yeah, fair enough. Mm. Uh, I'm, it's an interesting, interesting perspective. Um, but we've kind of... It seems that we have kind of veered away from <laughs> the beautiful <laughs> little... Um, I do think we should, we should talk about, you know, the argument where he's talking about um, an action... An action or a uh, what does he say like an action or like basically the idea that if I say that this folder is being carried mm -hmm. it's being carried because, because it's, it's by some someone is carrying it mm -hmm. not because it has the property of being carried and so right um, being loved by the gods is something is God loved because the gods are loving it and not because it's thing in itself in itself, itself is that quality. but piety is pious not because the gods love it but because the thing is what makes it pious is the fact that it's pious right it's not pious because the gods love it mm. it's pious because it's pious Right. Well, but this is the, this is the contradiction that Socrates ultimately shows Euthyphro that he's writing out because he makes both of well, I think Socrates gets him to make both of those arguments right. that it's pious because the gods love it and pious because it's pious and yeah, both exactly. of those claims. Well, I think, yeah, it was. It's. I mean, it's a very and ultimately they don't settle this question because Euthyphro says, "Well, I have to. I have stuff to do. I have to, I right. have to leave." So. Right. I think it's. I mean, I think it's worth kind of delving into because. I, I have had trouble kind of, I, I kind of think I understand the, the points, but it's very hard to re-describe in your own words what he makes. So imagine a lot of people, a lot of our listeners had trouble when we read it for the first time. Um, so I, I don't know. What do you guys think? Is it is it worth revisiting it? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so right, he says, you know, this is kind of the part where he says, um, so there is also something loved and a different thing, something loved. And then Euthyphro says, of course. And then Socrates says, tell me whether the thing carried is a carried thing because it is being carried or for some other reason. Hmm. And he says, and the thing, you know, it's, I'll, I'll let you look up. But right. So he's, he says like, uh, the thing is, is led because it's being led and not for some other reason. Mm -hmm. And the thing is being seen because it is a thing seen. Uh, it's sorry. A thing is being seen, not because it is a thing seen. So like Matthew is being seen by both of us, yeah. not because Matthew is a thing seen, mm. but because we, we see uh, Matthew. And the same thing with carried, like mm -hmm. uh, a thing is being carried uh, not because it's something carried, but because somebody is doing something to that thing that right. gives it uh, a carry. And so um, that's kind of leads him to say that, that 
um, something changed, sorry, something changed or affected it is that because somebody else is doing it to that thing. And so yeah. he, he draws a parallel to um, being loved mm. to something being changed or affected in a way. So um, like you don't, you if you love your wife, your wife is not somebody who's is not, you're not being loved because your wife is just somebody with the property of, you know, being loved. She's loved mm -hmm. because you love her. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is, this is in response to the fact that Euthyphro says that pi being pious is a property of being loved by the gods. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the the issue here is, is Socrates says right um, piety is not does not act in that same way where it becomes uh, pious because somebody else is doing something to the action that makes it pious it's pious because uh, pious action is pious action because it has pious principles mm. whereas something being loved by the gods is uh god loved because it is being because somebody else is loving it and so that's he uses that to say therefore piety and god lovingness cannot be the same thing mm -hmm. what do you guys think about that well, I'm compelled. Yeah, <laughs> that seems that seems pretty good. Are you, are, are you for it or against it? Do you think that's really no? Nah, I I think it's a really um, interesting argument, but I I think it is it it's casting piety as something like intrinsic and not to be uh, the other things you were talking about carrying and loving and things they're like somehow reciprocal things, whereas <clears throat> piousness is it's sort of for itself, it's for its own sake in a way. And that's what that argument's highlighting. Right. But I think it, it goes back to the point you're making earlier. It's like, how then, when you think about things that don't fall into the category of being changed or affected, like piousness, goodness, you know, Socrates tries to, to get out a, a principle or something concrete uh, from Euthyphro that mm. can be attributed to what makes something pious but it seems like well you throw can't and i don't know it seems like to me that we're not really able to mm. right because we live in a a world that's defined by humans mm. right and, 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 our, and our interactions right. so we're not able to you know say that to kind of separate something from our normal vernacular our normal vernacular yeah right or our perceptions of it or mm -hmm. characteristics or beliefs in it well, is this <clears throat> is this because it can't be described or is it due to a limitation of our language and our ability to and is this why we've relied on symbolism and mythology to ground these things in the past because of our 
limitations to be able to rationally articulate it. Mm. Well, it's like we've gotten yeah. we've got into the word pious, but we can't unpack that. That's that's kind of the simplistic, the most simplistic right. version we have. That's our brute fact. Brute fact. Stage. Yeah. And we're unable to kind of like break it into you know building blocks, right? Like, and so that's that's the issue, right? Those kind of building blocks that would make up right. the word pious. We don't know what it's they are. It's our atom. It's our atom. Yeah. Right. And so we, we have no vernacular mm -hmm. to construct something that would or deconstruct bias. Mm -hmm. And this leaves us with a, well, a kind of like a kind of relativism, like we were saying earlier. Like we, because it comes down to, again, like to something arbitrary. Like, mm -hmm. well, what is the good? What it just is. Yeah. Well, yeah. It either just is. And that isn't satisfactory. Good we're trying to explain someone it. or some people say that it's good. Mm -hmm. You either have to accept it as a rubric for the time being and run with it. Yeah. Or push back against it. But then you have to answer the same question yourself and replace it with something else. And so on and so on. Mm -hmm. So what do we do about that? Like, are these just empty words? Like Hedonism. <laughs> no, but but seriously, like like what do we do with these? Are they because they don't refer to anything, right? With, like when you think about like logic, right, and and um, the the what we were talking about a lot in my matter and language, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like what is language and the theory that it, it refers to something? What do these words like pious, goodness? What do they actually refer to? Are they just empty? Well, I mean, like, Euthyphro's first response when he when he gives his first answer is he says that the thing I'm doing right now, which I think in his mind is the right thing, right? Like there's mm -hmm. been a, a transgression. Right, but the problem with that is somebody else. Like that's that's the thing. Is it all? Is it just based on like relativistic? Like what is good is good because you think your action is is good, mm -hmm. right? You see the problem. Like Euthyphro saying that what is good refers to the action that I did. But that's not necessarily going to be universal. No, 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 no. Because well, he, he has a kind of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Elitism about himself, right? Because he's because obviously his family and his friends and the people around him disagree with his actions. Mm. It's like Socrates is initially shocked. He's like, "What man are you doing? You're prosecuting your father." But he thinks himself as having supreme wisdom about the pious and about mm -hmm. the divine. Um, so he's playing that role of the being that arbitrary it's kind of stopgap right. to say we're well, from here onwards mm -hmm. um so i don't yeah i don't know but we've said before matthew that uh moral relativism oh. itself isn't necessarily a reason to take things like piousness to be empty concepts because although norms uh vary culture to culture mm. the fact of some codes of normativity is a cultural constant and so there each culture will have its own version of piousness which they could explain to each mm. other uh so the relativity itself doesn't necessarily mean that the box is empty it's just quite opaque it's i'm gonna possibly not a box yeah i'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna steal something from the bible go for it but um like you know the the concept of like wind right you don't know you know where it came from you don't know what it is exactly, right? You don't know where it's going, but you know it's wind. You can always recognize wind, okay. right? And so in some sense, we could say the same thing about piousness or goodness, right? We don't know 
can't articulate, we can't say exactly what it is, but in some sense we know when something is good, when something is is pious. And we may not know the particulars, we may not be able to agree right. upon it, you know, an exact definition. Mm-hmm. Like a like a linguistic placeholder. But we recognize it when it happens. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the best we have. Well, and then you can argue about it, which is what they're doing in the text. Because right? so, Euthyphro would recognize his actions as pious, but Socrates is like, well, hang on, I don't, I don't think so. But then, is, so there's is, already a disagreement. Is Socrates, in some sense, in this dialogue, is he, is he recognizing something ve- kind of very a fundamental problem with human nature, with which is that like language and linguistics can only go so far for us that there's a severe limitation in in language well i think that's where his frustration comes from because you know multiple times he's he seems to be getting almost frustrated with you for a little bit he's like stop withholding from me the knowledge you have about mm. pious right and if you have if you right. have the knowledge that you say you have articulate yeah. it clearly to me yeah. now you seem pretty sure stop, you've got stop playing this game yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, perhaps, perhaps, yeah. Like language is not is not good. Sufficient, yeah. Sufficient for us. What I was, yeah, I th- I think so. Well, because it's like, um, but that's groundbreaking. Well, it's it's <laughs> no, but it's it's like this came up in the lecture the other day when I asked about the two or three different uh, words that the Greeks have for love. Right. Right. We only have one. Right. In the English language, there's one word for love. Right. right. And the other languages have got multiple different conceptions of mm. the same thing. And so when we're translating languages from Greek, Latin, Roman or whatever yeah. it is, or Russian, because I know the the Russian language is very emotive or there's, there's a there's a lot of depth in it that we don't necessarily are able to mm-hmm. to take from one and so when you translate Russian into English, you're not yeah. necessarily able to capture all that's being expressed yeah. in the Russian in the English language. Mm. So there are our, gaps in our, in our, our our professor might have a unique, you know, opinion about that. Okay, what does he what does he say? No, our professor. Oh, she, she's Russian. So because she's Russian. So I thought you were referring to, okay. to your um another lecture you had. Okay. No, I'm just saying because she's 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 yeah. Russian. So she, well, we should ask her. I didn't realize she was Russian. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, yeah, well, what you're just saying there leads on to the uh, a clarification I asked for in the lecture where um, about the, the sort of aphorism from Pythagoras, um, man is the measure of all things. Hmm. What does that mean exactly? Because I'd taken it that that meant that um, facts about the world are a kind of epistemic bubble is a sort of human size uh, phenomena. That, so uh, that we're not going to get in touch with facts beyond human knowledge. Um perhaps the world in itself, to use the Kantian reference. Um, but we have a common epistemic bubble. But then the lecturer said that it, it might well be to each individual person, they are the measure of their own set of facts and they, they, are, they are their own epistemic bubble. Um, hmm. And then equally, she said it might just be a fact about man is the measure of all things, as in we are the only ones doing the measuring. <laughs> We're hmm. the only ones with the reason amongst all the other animals. Each of those open up a various set of possibilities. Right. So, like applying that to the the thing you were just saying about you know languages have different words in English, which is mm-hmm. have one, but you know in other languages they have more. Is that like even you know just like manners and measure of all things? Like you know, so Russian, you know, might have a different piety. You know, yes, piety than, than based on their linguistic right. frame of right. reference. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, 
It is very interesting. Hmm. But do you yeah, think? Wow, because wow, well, then who are we talking to? How do we talk to each other? Right, right. And there's that famous thing like, if a lion could speak English, could you speak to it? Because its frame of reference would be so distinct from yours, you know, and it's evolution history. But then the question is like, do do we as humans have something in our in our head, an idea like of piety that is central mm. and the language different ways of trying to express walking around it but we're all lacking that like ability to communicate that sensual part this is why i brought up symbolism earlier right and like the like the idea of um uh hierarchy right like the idea of god is the most high right it's like it's 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 not articulated it's symbolic right it's not spoken Mm. necessarily it's it's lived out and embodied and represented in symbolism. Mm. So it's like... It's the Apollonian clarity. Right, right. And so it's... Sorry, that's from aesthetics. <laughs> so it's... Um... Oh, I got that. I got that. <laughs> I was not confused at all. Uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, the Dionysian confuses everything. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the Apollonian yeah. symbolism. Yeah. To... Um, Almost all symbols. No, but no, but no, but coming back to the limitations of our language. Yeah. Right? But maybe this is why we've been relying on symbolism to express the pious, mm-hmm. to express what it is that is ultimately good by placing. Right. I, I wrote a book called the um, the dynamics of faith in my one of my theology classes, mm. um, and as an atheist, um, I d- didn't I just agreed with an awful lot that was in this book, mm-hmm. right? Because it was uh, addressing the question of okay, well given that there seems to be some kind of hierarchical organization of value, like what is it that goes at the top? What's the most appropriate thing at the top, mm. right? And what do you place at the top? Because uh, and the discussion was, because if you place things like money, you place things like sex, like yourself, like power, right? It just corrupts you, mm-hmm. right? It just like, it, mm. it's not, it doesn't fill, doesn't fit the space of the, uh, uh, at right. the top of the of hierarchy of value. Right. So what is it that goes there? Mm-hmm. And we've filled that, and our, our answer culturally and historically has been symbolism, yeah. right? It hasn't been prose. It hasn't been, it has to a degree, but it's like in music and song and symbols and mythology. Um, and so like, I think we are contending with the limitations of our language mm. because mm. we have these other ways of right. thinking and expressing these same concepts yeah. of pious, of the mm-hmm. most good, the most high, um, and we don't use language all the time to do that. Mm. And maybe you could even say that, you know, all religions, right? They, it's a different. There, there. You know, the difference in religions is just different ways of trying to to grasp that like central concept right. perhaps mm, mm, and right. it's all you know and it's different ways of different of, windows into it different yeah. windows yeah. into kind of one thing that we're all trying mm. to to grasp in some sense mm, mm. so in some sense like that yeah so yeah. In, i mean in, in some sense right it is like and on the one hand it does kind of stand to say that oh we're all divided and and that is really hard to kind but of that's connect. The, that's the glass half full. Right. Let's take the, the yeah, glass half empty, rather. Yeah. Well, let's take the then, glass half full. But then there is the other half of it is like, well, actually, yeah. we're, we're all we're all kind of aiming for the same, for the same thing, thing, and we're all yeah. just you know trying to find yeah. ways to communicate this thing. As so best it, we can, from it, our it can be a very unifying, you know, perspective if you look at it that way. Because you're all engaged in the same endeavor, even though you're coming at it from different. Right. Yeah, like different even though you have all these different words and all these different, you know traditions and all these different things mm-hmm. 
really the thing that you're aiming at to communicate is the same. Yeah. And so perhaps by deconstructing, like what Socrates does, deconstructing and showing that like these words, they are not, you know, tied to one particular mm. thing allows us to see that, that none of us, yeah. you know, are like own it. None own of us it. own this thing. Own it. Yes. yes. Well, and, and, also, and also the kind of context of the conversation was because Socrates is about to be tried, accused by Melitus for being impious, mm. he's looking for an answer to be able to deliver in court. Ah. But then that brings us back to the limitations of like with the sophists, because it then comes down to rhetoric. Like how convincing can you be right. in a situation where it's yes. important to be convincing rather than articulate the truth, the truth. or yes. that, or because uh, Euthyphro says, I could convince a jury what is pious if they would listen to me. And mm. Socrates says, if you were to say something they would listen to you if you said something good, right? If right. you if you if you were able to not just be convincing, if you said something that was an expression of the pious, mm -hmm. they would they would listen. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the contrast there is between yeah, instrumental uh, ability to speak uh, persuasively and then modestly, sincerely approaching the truth to the, to mm. whatever extent you can. Mm. Yeah, I am. Well, I am I conscious of the time. Yes, yes. It's just four o'clock there. Um, do you have to leave us? I have to leave you, but yeah, really enjoyable that yeah, first conversation. I hope. I'm Listen, to that was a yeah. fascinating. Won't be your last. Yeah, well, that was great. yeah, okay. and you're our Wonderful. second guest on the show. Oh, yes, you are. Honor, honor. Okay, excellent. Yeah, don't worry, we'll get many more, and you will have a place in the legacy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll get the Mount Rushmore of the first guest. We'll get you a sticker. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, anyway, thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. Such a pleasure. Yeah. Pleasure. I'll um, jump out of your way, and you can okay. spread the word. Yeah, definitely. Okay. You guys, I'm mad at you because we said last time, comment. We need comments. No one commented. Uh -oh. No one commented. This is my pen here. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Please comment. All right. Cheers, lads. Thanks, everyone. All right. <laughs> Cheers. Yes. No I think it's stuff. Okay. Yep. I'll see you again, gents. Thank you. Sorry, say, bud. Oh, wait. Is that us done, or do you want to... I don't know about you, but I... I that seems like a good place to close I it off. I think that was a good place. Yeah. It was a 40-minute yeah. conversation. So. Have we, we ended it already? I haven't made the pop. Oh, okay. no, no, good. Don't, don't, don't. I want to say goodbye to everyone. Oh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> so, we're going to close it off there, because uh, I think that's a good place to call it. Yeah. Um, We have some new updates coming, so stay tuned for that. Yes. Uh, we're rebranding of sorts. Um. Very exciting stuff. Yes, very exciting stuff. A couple of cool announcements. And um, <clears throat> we are serious. We do really want to hear from you. Um, if you uh, don't find, say, because we're doing these two philosophy discussions or the ancient Greeks, if you're not following or you think that there's, uh, uh, you have something you want to contribute to what we've said, disagree, agree, add something that you has, that hasn't been said that you think should have done, we want to hear it. Yeah. Um, and so do we, is there... An easy way of them of people to do that is there yes is there an email address or is there a comment section there's a or... comment section so yeah on youtube um youtube comments youtube comments obviously and on spotify there's a button that you hit to that you can record yourself with your iphone okay and cool. that comment goes right to us so you don't even have to type it out you just you just record yourself and we get the comment and then we will reply excellent Excellent. Um, um, 
We don't have a social media account, do we? No, it's coming soon. We're working on that. That is coming soon. The website is coming soon. Rebranding. Uh, rebranding. Stickers. Uh, new mission. New mission. More guests. Please trust us on this one. Watch this space. Watch this space. What? Watch this space. Yes. Okay. Anyway. anyway. Thank you very much, everyone. Yeah. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Take care of yourselves, and we do hope to hear from you. Yeah.